Welcome, fellow explorers. My name is Christian Alexanderson, and this is Hemlocks to Hellbenders, a podcast highlighting Pennsylvania's parks, forests, and great outdoors. In honor of President's Day, this episode is on James Buchanan, our 15th president of the United States, and up until recently, the only president from Pennsylvania. The first part of the podcast will focus on Buchanan's birthplace state park, what to do, what to see, and how best to experience it. The second part of the podcast will focus solely on the man long dubbed the worst president in history. We'll hear about his life as a legislator, diplomat, president, and gentleman farmer. But before we get to the interviews, here's the stats. Buchanan's birthplace is an 18 and a half acre park located in Franklin County. Available activities include picnicking, photography, and fishing. A notable feature of the park is the 31 foot tall monument celebrating President James Buchanan. Buchanan's birthplace state park is so named because it is the site of President James Buchanan's childhood home called Stony Batter. Nearby towns include Chambersburg, Shippensburg, and Hagerstown, Maryland. State parks that are close by include Cowan's Gap. You may enjoy the park if you enjoy rugged terrain and solitude. I'm excited to welcome Beth Garner to the podcast. Beth is an Environmental Education Regional Program Coordinator with the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Thanks for joining the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Christian. How would you describe the park to someone who's never been here before? So if you've never been there, um, Buchanan's birthplace is a small scenic park tucked into a quiet hollow at the base of a mountain. Um, it features a pretty little trout stream that burbles between rocky hillsides and is shaded by mature hemlock trees. So it's a place that offers a cool retreat in the summer, um, but is really quite picturesque in any season of the year. What do you love most about the park? I think I would have to say the peace and quiet. Um, Buchanan's birthplace is right off of Route 16, which is a is a pretty busy roadway. But once you're back in the park, you really feel like you're kind of in deeper wilderness. So that that peace and quiet element, I think, is is really neat. That that and just the beauty. It's it's just such a pretty little park. Is there something everyone should experience when they visit? Well, if you're coming to Buchanan's birthplace, you have to see the monument. <laughs> and you can't miss it. It's it's only 18 and a half acre park, uh, one way in, one way out. So definitely take a few moments to walk up and, and check out the James Buchanan monument. You talked a little bit about its size. I know activities are pretty limited in the park. What do you suggest visitors do to get the most out of their visit? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it, it's certainly not a big flashy park with a ton of uh, fancy amenities by, by any means. So I would say, first of all, bring your lunch. There are two picnic pavilions. There are picnic tables. There are grills. Definitely bring your lunch with you. Uh, bring your camera. As I said, it is a very picturesque park um, in any season of the year. Just, just pretty sights all over. Uh, bring your fishing rod if you're into fishing. If you're a trout fisherman, Buck Run does have native uh, trout in the stream. If you're into birding, bring your binoculars, your field guides, especially during the spring and fall migrations. Because the park has so many hemlock and spruce trees, it tends to be a place where the birds will sort of take refuge during migrations. Um, so yeah, I mean, even though it's it's not a big fancy park, there's there's still plenty to do. Can you tell us about the James Buchanan Monument and how it came to be? Sure. So the James Buchanan Monument is a native stone pyramid. It is 38 feet square at the base, 31 feet high. And when I say native stone, what that means is that the stone 
to construct the pyramid was all harvested from, from on the site. These are stones that were found naturally occurring around, around the area. Um, so about 60, or I'm sorry, 600 tons of native stone and mortar were used to construct the pyramid. And then there are some granite accents to kind of finish it off. The monument itself was designed by a Baltimore architecture firm, and it was constructed in 1907. Um, so that would be about 40 years after James Buchanan had passed away. James Buchanan Sr. bought a trading post that resided on the park's land during its heyday in the late 1700s. It had cabins, barns, stables, storehouses, and more. It was named Stony Batter after the Buchanan home in Northern Ireland. What do we know of Stony Batter? So Stony Batter was actually a, a pretty important place at that time. It was situated in a strategic location where the road basically ended at the base of Tuscarora Mountain. So, you know, in, in that time, mountains were a tremendous barrier to travel and to the moving of goods and, and supplies. So if you were a traveler headed west in that area, you were coming upon two mountains back to back. You had Cove Mountain followed immediately by Tuscarora Mountain. And so Cove Gap is very unique in that a stream actually had carved all the way through Cove Mountain so you could just drive right through. <laughs> it was perfect. Get through one mountain, you don't have to worry about it. But then you have Tuscarora Mountain and, and Tuscarora is a very formidable mountain. Even today, it is rugged, it is rocky, it is steep. And wagons just were not getting up over that mountain. So what you had at Stony Batter, you would have wagon loads of goods and supplies coming from cities in the east. They were coming from Philadelphia. They were coming from Lancaster. They would get to Stony Batter. The road ends. They can't go any further. And they would offload all these goods into the storehouses that Mr. Buchanan had. And then at some point, those goods would be put onto pack horses, and the pack horses would then take them up over Tuscarora Mountain. So, um, you know, this really was a very important place as far as moving goods and supplies west was concerned at the time. It seems like James Buchanan Sr. kind of set himself up perfectly to be involved with all the trade that was going to be coming through the area. Oh my gosh, absolutely. He he had actually started to work for the gentleman who owned the trading post a few years before he purchased it himself. And um, from what I've read, he was a very savvy businessman. So he, he definitely knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Today, Cogap is a quiet and remote place. But when James Buchanan was growing up, it was on the western edge of civilization. What was the area like back then? <laughs> so you are absolutely right, Christian. Today, Cogap is a quiet and remote place. Uh, when James Buchanan was growing up there, was it remote? Yes. Was it quiet? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> so because of the nature of James's father's trading business, Stony Batter was a very busy place. Uh, I've read that at some points he would have as many as 100 animals in the stables. Uh, and those weren't his own animals. Those were all the, the pack horses and the the, the wagon horses and oxen and whatever other critters that the Teamsters and so forth were using to haul their, their goods back and forth. And you think about it, it was, it was kind of a little bit like a modern-day Amazon distribution center. <laughs> <laughs> Only instead of tractor trailers going back and forth all the time, you had all these animals. Uh, and, of course, along with that went the men. 
the Teamsters, the Pack Horse drivers. And these guys were not known to be particularly refined in their manners. So you would have had drinking, you would have had swearing, all kinds of ruckus going on. So much so that uh, Buchanan's mother actually felt this was no place to raise young children. So when James was about six years old, the family actually moved towards Mercersburg um, in a more civilized environment. Do we have an understanding of how big Stony Batter was? It was a, it was a couple hundred a couple hundred acres that he owned. Um, so it was not just you know the the store, the house, the stables, all that. He actually had some area cleared, some farmland, some orchards, um, which is a little bit hard to imagine today when you go to visit because it's all forested. Um, so he would have had not just the area that's tucked in right now, but area around that as well. How old was James when he was moved? It was about six. He was pretty young. What were his thoughts on his birthplace after he left? Is it something he remembered or something he wrote about? So, so yeah, he did actually. Actually, when, when Buchanan was sort of at an advanced age, the owner of the Stony Batter site invited him to come back and visit his birthplace. Now, he didn't do that because, you know, he, he was older and, and didn't really want to travel that far. But he did write back and he replied, it is a rugged but romantic spot and the mountain and the mountain stream under the scenery captivating. I have warm attachments for it. So it does seem that he did have a memory of it and, and was rather fond of it. Harriet Lane Johnston, youngest child of James Buchanan's sister Jane, was instrumental in paying for and getting a monument built for her uncle. What did she do? So I feel like this one needs a little bit of backstory. Um, Harriet, when she was about 10 years old, she actually lost both her father and her mother only about a year apart. So she was, she was still pretty young. And at that time, she got to choose who she wanted to live with. And she picked her uncle, James. He was reportedly her favorite uncle. And so James Buchanan raised her and she was very, very fond of him. Uh, so much so that when Buchanan became president of the United States, he was not married. Harriet acted as his first lady, took care of all the, the first lady duties of the White House. So after his death, she wanted him to be remembered. So she made provisions in her will. She set aside a significant amount of money and also instructions for there to be two monuments built to James Buchanan. One was to be built in Washington, D.C., and then the second at Stony Batter. She tried for several years to purchase the Stony Batter site, but the owners would never sell to her. And so unfortunately, she never got to see the creation of either monument to her favorite uncle. But a couple years after she then passed away, the board of trustees to whom she had entrusted this mission was finally able to purchase the property and begin the process of creating the monument. Now there is a mystery associated with the Stony Batter monument. Harriet specifically said in her will that she thought the monument should be a massive native stone boulder, which of course we know is not what's there. We got a pyramid. <laughs> so why that was switched out, we really don't know. Pretty much every other detail was attended to as Harriet had wanted, except for this one. Um, whether it was just too big of a task or 
you know, the boulder was too heavy. I don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. So that will continue to be a mystery. Was she trying to honor her uncle based on any perception of that he wasn't a very good president at the time? Or do you think it was just out of love and admiration? I think it was out of love and admiration, truly. Um, she just, you know, he was a such an important part of her life from such an early age. He obviously made quite an impression upon her that as a 10-year-old girl, she picked to live with him. So um, she she was just very fond. And I, I think, too, the sort of um, reputation that he had with a lot of people after the Civil War, it hurt her. And, and she wanted him to be remembered for the man that she knew. What are people's impression of the monument when they see it? Are they impressed? Are they disappointed? What, what do you think? <laughs> So I think people kind of have two two thoughts come to mind when they see it for the first time. If they're not expecting it, you drive into this little scenic park, you know, rocky hillsides, hemlock trees, little stream, feels very wildernessy, and then there's suddenly a pyramid. And it's like, why is there a pyramid in the middle of the woods? <laughs> you know, it just it, it seems a little weird. And then I think the second thing is, you know, you think pyramid, you think Egypt. And in Egypt pharaohs are buried in pyramids. So then you wonder, oh, is this where Buchanan's buried? He, is he, you know, under the pyramid? Well, I, I can assure you this is not where Buchanan is buried. He's buried in Lancaster. There is no James Buchanan mummy in the bottom of the pyramid monument in <laughs> Buchanan's birthplace, State Park. I feel like that would add to a bit more visitors coming to the park if they <laughs> thought there was some chance they were going to see a James Buchanan mummy at the bottom of a pyramid. I know, right? <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> do you have tips for people who are going to be planning a visit to the park? Is it something that you could spend a whole day at, or do you think it's it's maybe you spend a couple hours there? It's probably more the kind of place you spend a couple hours. Um, things to consider when you go there, uh, the park is a carry-in, carry-out park, so there are no trash receptacles available. So, you know, as you bring your lunch, and, and like I said, please do bring your lunch, just be prepared to take your trash out with you. Something else to know is that Cowan's Gap State Park is the caretaker for Buchanan's birthplace. So if you have questions or if you're looking for more information about the park and its facilities, you'll want to contact Cowan's Gap. Um, and then, you know, finally, just, just definitely do bring your camera because it is such a pretty little park. The stream, the trees, the monument, the, the rocky hillsides. Um, be sure to take home some beautiful memories from this quaint little park. I would second how beautiful it is. It was one of those parks that I didn't do a lot of research when I first went to, and I kind of just showed up. It was very early in the morning. There was fog. You could hear the water going, and it was just a really beautiful scene, just being able to have moments to yourself. And sometimes in Pennsylvania State Parks, there's a lot of people there. Absolutely. Yeah, if you're looking for a spot for a few minutes of quiet reflection, Buchanan's Birthplace is a place to go. Beth, thanks so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to welcome Pat Clark to the podcast. Pat is the director of President James Buchanan's Wheatland in Lancaster. Thanks for joining the program. Well, thank you for having me, Christian. Buchanan became involved in politics and quickly rose. He served in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, U.S. House of Representatives, United States Senate, and was the U.S. ambassador to Russia. Later, he was the secretary of state in the Polk administration and the ambassador to the United Kingdom under the Taylor administration. How would you describe his politics? Did they change over time? Well, Buchanan was a um, 
a classic conservative. Uh, he starts out in in the political uh, arena, uh, like a lot of Pennsylvanians uh, back in the early 19th century. Uh, the, the Pennsylvania is dominated by the Federalist Party, uh, and uh, essentially the the description of Federalists were the the well-heeled conservative uh, Americans of their day. Now Buchanan, by the time he uh, enters politics, he's he's not what I would call wealthy. <laughs> uh, he's a 23-year-old boy, uh, and uh, but he's he's got his finger in the pie. He's he's on his way up the ladder. By the time he's 30, he's uh, amassed a net worth of about $300,000. You look at inflation numbers based on the year that the years that we're talking about for him, he, it's the uh, the late 1820s. It's roughly equivalent to a little over six million dollars in today's money. He's a conservative. He's he's also described uh, by most uh, historians, many historians, as a strict constitutional constructionist. This is what the law says. This is what it means. There's no no in between. Uh, this is what you have to accept. In the days of the U.S. House, fairly early on, he enters it in 21, but by 24. The Federalist Party is marginalized uh, on the, the national stage. However, back in Pennsylvania, for a few more years, when he comes home, he's still considered a Federalist, uh, even though he is trying to shift himself away and trying to bring fellow Pennsylvanians along with him uh, into uh, what might be described as an amalgamation party. Uh, and then Jackson formulates and and firms up what becomes known as the Democratic Party. Uh, and Buchanan jumps on board. Uh, again, just like the Federalists, very conservative. <laughs> and the Democratic Party remains the ultra-conservative party throughout most of the 19th century. He's very much uh, a guy who is in love with the law. Uh, the law is everything to him. Uh, and it's really hard sometimes to sort of separate James Buchanan, the man, and James Buchanan, the politician. So his public and private life are kind of like very tightly intertwined. When he's in the Senate, uh, he del delivers a speech on the floor uh, in, a, in kind of a, a deliberation over wages for the American worker. Uh, and this is where he gets his one of his nicknames. And he he basically is quoted as saying that he felt that uh, 10 cents was a, was a fair wage for the American worker. Uh, and so he gets the nickname 10 Cent Jimmy. Was that a nickname he liked? Oh, he hated all of his nicknames. <laughs> the only nickname that he really liked was uh, the nickname given to him when he buys Wheatland. Uh, all of his friends start calling him the Sage of Wheatland. That you know, and he he really loved that whole concept of being this gentleman farmer. 1824, there was a big tariff, right? Uh, and this is another part of Buchanan's uh, persona as a politician. He's a he's a big states' rights man, and so uh, and very partisan. So Pennsylvania likes this idea of this tariff. Of course, other states despise it. But Buchanan, of course, votes for it because he sees it as a very positive thing for the Pennsylvania, uh, for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So states' rights, conservative, and a strict constructionist. 
Buchanan was selected as the presidential nominee for the Democratic Party in 1856. What made him a good candidate at the time? Uh, let's look at 1854, or a, back, back up even further, go to 1850. Uh, Millard Fillmore is the vice president of the United States, uh, and uh, Zachary Taylor is the president. Uh, so Fillmore, as the president of the uh, presiding um, member of the U.S. Senate, uh, presides over uh, this great debate called the debate of, of the Compromise of 1850. So that's a multi-part uh, compromise uh, you know, intended to try and solve some of the problems of the of the country, and this uh, includes the the onerous Fugitive Slave Act. The Compromise of 1850 accepted California as a free state, and it left ter nearby territories: Utah, New Mexico, Nevada, and Arizona. And this is the first time where Congress and the president is saying. The territories get to decide whether they're going to be free or whether they're going to be a slave state uh, when they're forming their their constitutions. Uh, and then the fugitive slave law, this new fugitive slave law comes out, requires that all runaway slaves be returned to their owners, uh, even if it if they're found in a free state. And the act also uh, requires that uh, the federal government is responsible for finding and returning and, and trying escaped slaves. Uh, so basically, it's making you know the the U.S. Marshals these hunters uh, of runaway slaves. There weren't a whole lot of people that loved it or approved of this uh, compromise, but uh, you know, as it's being debated, I think it's 14 weeks into his uh, into his uh, presidency, Taylor dies, and Millard Fillmore ascends to the to the presidency. Fillmore signs it. Some say that had Zachary Taylor lived, it would have never been signed. But that's a debate for another time. So Fillmore signs this into law. Uh, Buchanan's, uh, you know, heard in private letters that were, uh, uh, some of them we own, uh, uh, saying, you know, that the the fugitive slave law is is law. It's the law of the land, and it should never be violated. Jeez, please! <laughs> How much worse can this guy get? <laughs> um, but uh, four years after the Compromise of 1850, Senator Stephen Douglas, who is clearly interested in becoming president of the United States, even as early as 54, uh, he becomes the author of uh, a new act called the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So now this is uh, uh, dealing with a whole other section of the land that before uh, any of this occurs, you know, before the Kansas-Nebraska Act occurs, this land was, according to the Missouri Compromise of 1821, this is not supposed to be an area that should even be in question as to whether or not they're supposed to be slaves. But remember, the 1850 Act comes into play as well. So you have these two acts that are now become the law of the land. Um, but the one who signs the 54 Act into law is President Pierce. So, uh, so you have these different players now in the Democratic Party. Uh, Douglas, who wants to become president, 
Pierce, who is president, and then by 1856, he's both of these men are vying for the uh, for the presidency with the Democrats. Uh, Pierce wants to desperately be renominated, but he has made such a mess of the territory of Kansas that it ends up getting a nickname called Bleeding Kansas during his tenure as president of the United States. So uh, Jimmy Buchanan is over in London. Uh, and while he's over in London, he's writing letters back to his supporters in the States, and they're positioning themselves leading up to the 1856 campaign for the president to try and get him into the nomination seat. Uh, and uh, this is what makes him a, a really great candidate in the eyes of the Democratic Party. Everyone thought, geez, this guy was a great diplomat. You know, look what he did in Russia. Look what he did for us in, in Great Britain. We're a divided nation. We're a fractured nation. This guy, surely, you know, he's got a great resume. He can pull us back together. He's a great diplomat. But He's also the man who doesn't have any blood on his hands. All of this nightmarish stuff from the Compromise of 1850 all the way through to the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act and right up to Bleeding Kansas, uh, James Buchanan wasn't involved. So he's a great middle-of-the-road guy. He gets the nomination. Buchanan was elected president in 1856. He promised to only serve one term. His presidency was dominated by the issue of slavery with the Dred Scott decision and the Kansas-Nebraska Act. What were his beliefs regarding slavery and the government's role in controlling it? You know, slavery is um, a huge issue uh, in the United States from the day that we, 13 original colonies, ratified the, uh, the Constitution uh, and we become the United States uh, with, a, with a new set of laws. Where the United States were, were a country that, uh, until you get through the Civil War, were a country of sovereign states that are loosely bound. The Dred Scott court decision had been in the hands of the Supreme Court for years before uh, 1856. Uh, and it was supposed to be a simple, you know, it was Dred Scott was, he wanted his freedom. Uh, you know, he had been forgotten about by this family when his owner uh, took him into a free state and then dies. <laughs> and then he's left there. Uh, so he figures, hey, I'm free. Uh, but then one of the family members of the, the dead owner says, hey, I want that slave to, uh, to be handed over to uh, another family member. So this is where that begins. James Buchanan's involved in the whole process of handing down this decision, uh, primarily because he's really close friends with Supreme Court Justice Catrone from Tennessee. Uh, he's, he's getting his fingers dirty communicating, although it, you know, today that's considered really a huge no-no. Uh, you know, slap your hands you've uh, violated the separation of powers uh, belief in our country. But uh, back then it wasn't, wasn't really considered all that outlandish to have 
someone like Buchanan communicating with a, a Supreme Court justice. And in this case, he was trying to figure out, well, when are you going to hand down this decision? <laughs> are you going to hand it down before I go up for my inaugural speech, or is this going to take place after? So he was trying to get a handle on that. Uh, and in the course of his conversations with Catrone, Catrone suggests, you know, why don't, why don't you get a hold of Greer in Pennsylvania and uh, see where he's at? T tell him how important it is to have, have some unity on this whole issue. So Buchanan does it, you know, from his days and going back to his days in Congress, Buchanan really believed that, you know, don't, don't be touching this issue of slavery. Uh, if you do talk about it, handle it with kid gloves. But you know what? Slavery's just going to disappear. It'll take time. Just, you know, leave, the, leave the southern slave-owning states alone. It'll eventually just wither away. Um, so, but, you know, no one really believed that. Uh, Buchanan probably really didn't believe that. Uh, and, and had he really believed that, uh, which is hard to say one way or the other, but when you look at the, at the actions of the slave-owning states, I mean, this was all about power in Congress. Buchanan, again, always turns to the whole business of the law. And what does the law say? And we're just going to follow the law. Uh, and he he believed, knowing what was in the the final decision that the Supreme Court was going to uh, release about the Dred Scott case, he believed that this was going to solve all the problems. So he already had his inaugural speech written by the by the time he and his nephew and his niece, his housekeeper and. Uh, others joined him in the inaugural train ride from Lancaster down to Washington. But we know through his nephew, Buck Henry, who was his private secretary, whose hand wrote out that inaugural speech, that his uncle, when they got into the hotel in Washington, said, pull that speech out again. I need to add another statement about a very important court case that is soon to be released. So now he knows it's like a day or two before his inauguration, he knows that it, the decision's not going to be handed down until after he's had his uh, day in the sun uh, as, as the new uh, president of the United States. Uh, and uh, an awful lot of people, when he delivers that speech, and a few days later, when the Supreme Court hands down their decision, uh, they know that Buchanan was somehow involved in this and and they're they're really irritated but buchanan has uh like i think all of us we're all complicated beings aren't we uh buchanan has uh a, a private view of slavery and he's got a public view of slavery uh his private view of slavery is that hey i'm not, i'm not a great fan of it but when you really look at his private life you see something slightly different. Uh, his public view was, you know, slavery. He says it when he's uh, uh, in the the U.S. House that slavery was a a moral evil, uh, and uh, as well as a an evil upon our government, and it should be eliminated. But I don't know how to do it. Privately, James Buchanan grew up 
where his parents, they weren't, they didn't own slaves, but they, they paid for the time for enslaved humans to work for them. So indentured servitude. Um, we know this because Mr. Buchanan, I think the year was 1813 or 14, advertises in the Franklin repository that he has uh, the time, uh, there's, uh, he has a, a, a Negro boy who still has time left uh, to serve uh, and that he's selling the time of this Negro boy. He doesn't need him anymore, so he's trying to find someone else to, to pay for his time. Uh, and then when Mr. Buchanan dies in 1821, uh, his widow, Elizabeth, and uh, uh, her son-in-law, uh, Elliot Toll Lane, place an ad in the same newspaper selling all of the for hay forks and wagons and plows, et cetera, et cetera, at the home of her, her late husband uh, and the time of a young Negro girl who still has time on, on her uh, service. So uh, Buchanan grows up with this. Buchanan himself uh, does this as a young attorney in the 1820s. He has a, a man named Henry Wilkes, a black, uh, uh, black man in Lancaster who uh, is serving time. So he's participating in this whole indentured servitude, which is just as bad as owning a slave. Uh, in 1830, uh, 1835, he discovers that one of the relatives of his brother-in-law, uh, the Reverend Henry, uh, owns two females. One was 22 in the, uh, and, the, and was the, the mother of a five-year-old, uh, Daphne and Ann Cook. Daphne was the, the mother. And he pays $250 to Ann D. Henry in 1835. Uh, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania has the, the, the deed that Buchanan writes up in his own hand. Um, it's called a conditional deed of manumission. Manumission being the voluntary uh, act of providing gradual emancipation, which was the law of Pennsylvania. The 1780 Act started out where it just said, you know, if you follow this law, uh, and you want to get rid of your slaves, provide them with uh, emancipation. There's an age of emancipation, and it was 28 years of age. So Daphne Cook, under the rules of Pennsylvania, would have had to have served him for uh, 22 to age 28, and her five-year-old would be bound to James Buchanan's service until she was 28 years of age. That's horrific, <laughs> certainly by our moral standards. Uh, and I'm sure by a lot of people who were living then that had that kind of moral standard that this is just wrong. Buchanan knew that the morals of it were wrong. He, he wrote it in a book as a young student on what sla was slavery right or wrong. But when he was president of the United States and actually had the power to do something about it, when he was in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House had the power to try and do something about it, he didn't. Uh, and he and the reason he didn't do it uh, is described by his nephew James Henry many many years later. And let me read a quote from Buck Henry's uh, a biographical sketch of his uncle. 
There was constant recognition of the legal existence of slavery in the South and its right to protection, so long as it legally existed there, rendered my uncle liable to misrepresentation at the North and to misconception at the South, the one regarding him as an apologist of slavery and the other as its open friend, whereas he was neither. He was only desirous to see the Constitution and laws obeyed and did emphatically not believe in the so-called higher law. That is, he left the moral side of the question entirely out of consideration. Unfortunately, Buchanan sees slavery as wrong, but he does absolutely nothing about it. And he can't figure out how the government can help. When Abraham Lincoln was elected, the talk of secession and disunion reached a bowling point. Before ending his term, Buchanan spoke to Congress on the issue. In his message, Buchanan denied the right of states to secede, but maintained the federal government was without power to prevent them. Do you think Buchanan could have prevented the Civil War? Short answer, no. Looking back in time gives us the luxury of already knowing what happens, or what happened, I should say. Um, but let's play what if. Let's go back to 1856. Who were the players running for president besides Buchanan? Uh, the Democrat uh, was the very first Republican uh, running uh, John C. Fremont. Um, and the uh, former president of the United States representing the American party, the know-nothings, as they were called, uh, Millard Fillmore. What if, we know Fillmore didn't have a prayers chance. He only carried Maryland. <laughs> but uh, the Republicans almost beat James Buchanan. Had James, had James Buchanan lost the presidency, he had, been, he had been hearing from the Southern states, the slave-owning states, that if you don't win the White House, we're out of here. Um, and so, you know, that was one of Buchanan's big fears as a politician. And he talks about that back as early as the 1820s and 30s in Congress, that uh, he fears that, you know, if we touch upon the issue of slavery, it could become the, it could become the bomb that divides our our union and will will be you know up for grabs from the european powers so i i don't think buchanan had a had any opportunity to prevent the civil he i think he tried to delay it but uh, i i don't think really truly i don't think anyone could have prevented the civil war from happening it was a powder keg ready to explode. And really the, you know, the trigger that lit the fuse was the election of Abraham Lincoln. Because of Buchanan's inaction on slavery, he is often seen as the nation's worst president. Do you think this is accurate or a fair criticism? Instead of his inaction on slavery, I think the, the more accurate way of looking at it would to be uh, saying that it's based on the many decisions and actions Buchanan took. Uh, he really was not inactive. <laughs> he was doing things as president. A lot of them were self-inflicted wounds. One of the other elements of his presidency, uh, besides the self-inflicted wounds that he, he brought upon himself, was his failure to be a, a manager of men, 
a manager of personnel. You know, he's got a cabinet. Uh, he's got all these people working under him. Buchanan had never managed people throughout his career. He had a great resume, but he, his resume didn't include managing people. Um, both of these issues, uh, his, his, his self-inflicted wound, the first one, uh, and his poor management of people, both of them emerged during the year of 1857. So this is his very first year in office. Uh, but we don't really see them. Uh, we don't see the results of uh, these wounds and, and uh, poor personnel management until you get to the end of December of 1857. So uh, going back to uh, the beginning of his presidency, Buchanan decides he's going to, you know, solve this problem that his predecessor couldn't solve in Kansas. And he appoints a new uh, territorial governor. He, he picks a man who he served with under Polk's administration, Robert Walker. Uh, Walker's actually a Pennsylvanian, but he's living in, he's been living in Mississippi for many, many years. Slave owner, uh, although he, uh, unbeknownst to Buchanan, he, uh, Freed all of his slaves. <laughs> so Buchanan doesn't know this about him. He figures, you know, he's a slave owner. And, uh, he'll, he'll be a good one to handle this whole business of getting Kansas in. And that's, I should say, uh, before I go any further, Buchanan uh, is determined to bring Kansas territory into statehood as quickly as possible. He wants to put it on the fast track. So he handpicks Walker to be his. Uh, governor of, of, and then he goes, goes away on vacation in the summer, like he always did. He went up to Bedford Springs, just enjoying a nice reprieve from, from the work. Uh, so he's away, but before he leaves, when, and before Walker accepts the appointment, Walker turns to Buchanan and to his cabinet, and he says, I'll take this job on with one rule that we all have to agree upon. If we can't agree upon it, I'm not, I'm not playing the game. Uh, and that was that uh, no matter what constitution is formed in the state of Kansas, in the territory of Kansas, it has to be ratified by all of the people. The whole constitution has to be ratified by the citizens of that territory before Congress gets a chance to look it over and, and vote on it. Buchanan says, of course. No problem. You know, you got my you got my word on it. Uh, all the cabinet members like, yeah, thumbs up. You know, we're we're right behind you, uh, Robert. We're we're not going to turn our backs on you. Buchanan goes away on vacation. Walker's having all sorts of problems out there in Kansas, like uh, his predecessor had, because the, you know, the uh, the slave owners from Missouri, the border ruffians, as they were known. They had long before Walker arrived, they had taken over the, the territory's uh, legislature. Uh, and now they were taking over in Lecompton, the, uh, the convention to create a, a constitution. So it becomes a pro-slavery constitution. They say, well, you know, the governor wants us to have this ratified amongst our citizens. So sure, we'll, we'll have them ratify this section of it. <laughs> and if they don't ratify that, then then, you know, uh, then the whole thing goes to Congress anyway. So they're just basically pushing things through. 
Uh, in the meantime, back in Washington, Buchanan's gone and his cabinet members are feeding Robert Walker the same line that they had fed him when he was in Washington before he took on the job, saying, yeah, no problem. We got your back. Uh, we're, we're definitely going to control this, uh, this whole thing for you. You'll get your way. Uh, we'll force ratification. But at the same time, they're turning to all the Southern slave senators and congressmen saying, don't worry, we've got this under control. We're going to make sure the Lecompton Constitution gets in here and you can just push it through Congress and, and get it ratified. And sure, the president will sign it when, uh, when, you, when you take care of it on your end. Complete opposite, right? The problem is newspapers are covering all of this information and they print the Lecompton Constitution in, what, in these national papers and it gets into Robert Walker's hands. So Walker is suddenly aware in December, in November or so that, wait a second, Congress is, is getting ready to ratify and, and vote on this Lecompton Constitution. And these people here that I'm governing haven't even had a chance to ratify this thing. What's happening in Washington? So he decides, I'm going to travel to Washington and they, if they're going to lie to me, they're going to lie to my face. So he gets there just as Buchanan's returning from vacation. And Buchanan's like, what's the matter, Bob? <laughs> There's nothing, no problems here. I'm, what I gave you, when I told you uh, when you took the job, it's still the case. He's like, really? And then Buchanan discovers that while he was away on vacation, his cabinet took over the presidency. And they cut the deals with Congress. Uh, and so now he's faced with, if I don't support my cabinet, I might lose members of my cabinet, and I'll be hand, trying to handle Congress all by myself while trying to get new cabinet members. Or do I support my governor? And if I do that, then I lose control of my presidency. And my cabinet takes over. What's he do? He takes over. He takes the side of his cabinet. Walker resigns as governor, so Kansas doesn't have a governor, and Buchanan is powerless. Uh, and then he inflicts another wound on himself during 1858 by burning all of his political capital, trying to push the Lecompton Constitution through Congress, even going to the extent of bribing members of Congress to vote his way. History tells us that he fails in doing that. And of course, the midterms come around and he loses, uh, his uh, party loses control of, of Congress to the Republican Party. Uh, and the Covode Commission uh, appears and starts to investigate corruption in Buchanan's uh, administration. So it just starts to, you know, like a, a, a stone rolling down a mossy hill. <laughs> Buchanan's just a, a he's a, a weak president in that way. Uh, but it's not because of his inaction. It's because of the decisions that he makes are the wrong decisions at the wrong time. Uh, 
So that that that's why I would I would agree that Buchanan was probably one of the worst presidents of the United States, but not for the reasons of inaction. Buchanan kept his promise to only serve one term, leaving the White House in 1861. He supposedly told Lincoln, if you are as happy in entering the White House as I shall feel on returning to Wheatland, you are a happy man. Tell us a little bit about Wheatland. Well, Wheatland was a farm, what could be easily described as an ornamental gentleman's farm. Buchanan really uh, is attracted to the beauty of rural life, you know, the rural landscape. The, the, the farm originally was established in 1828 uh, by a good friend of Buchanan, William and Mary Jenkins. He was actually real close friends with Mary uh, and through Mary became good friends with her, her husband, William, uh, and served as a groomsman when they got married. Uh, he saw Wheatland being built for the Jenkins family. William owned it. Uh, it was 156 and a half acres when, it, when he uh, first bought the property. But uh, 10 years later, he sells the property to his son-in-law, and he only sells his son-in-law about 17 and a half acres, uh, sells the rest to a couple of other farmers. And then a year later, his son-in-law buys five extra acres back from one of those farmers, brings it up to the size that Buchanan knew, which was 22, 22 and a half acres. Not a huge farm, but a, a, a nice little farm. Uh, and um, Buchanan. Uh, uh, buys it from a guy who is politically a Whig, who actually uh, had used it. He bought it from uh, the son-in-law, Potter, uh, and only used it as a summer residence, unlike Jenkins and Potter. Uh, and Buchanan has intentions of using it as a, a permanent residence. So uh, he buys it uh, in 1848 when uh, he's still serving in the... Um, uh, the capacity of Polk's uh, U.S. Secretary of State. In fact, he he begins negotiations soon after he learns that he's not going to get the nomination <laughs> from the Democrats. So he figures, hey, I'll go into semi-retirement and I'll just enjoy this wonderful life as a, a gentleman farmer. So that's what Wheatland was. It was a farm uh, and Buchanan enjoyed living there. And we own the farm as a, as stewards of the historic site, uh, Lancaster History, uh, and it's uh, it's it's a fabulous place because uh, it of all the U.S. presidents, I mean, we all know what Monticello looked like. Uh, we, we, you know, there's the drawings that Thomas Jefferson made over the years when he first drew up his plans for Monticello and then changed them throughout his life, and and it's a wonderful historic site. We know what Mount Vernon looks like, uh, and several other presidents, but Wheatland was one of the most documented by public newspapers because Buchanan was a well-known politician. Uh, I already meant, told you one of his nicknames was Ten Cent Jimmy. His other nickname that he really despised was the old public functionary. He had been elected to almost every electable position <laughs> in the United States, uh, certainly by the time he gets elected as president. What can visitors see when they come to visit Wheatland? We own 11 of the 22 acres, and the, the county's historical society was, was, its first permanent home was built uh, on the apple and pear orchards of the farm right next to the mansion back in uh, 1956, I believe. And so uh, that building 
which has now been expanded a couple of times, serves as our uh, our visitor headquarters and our administrative headquarters. It's where all of the objects in the collection are stored and preserved. Uh, it's where we have a research center, we have archives uh, and, and places uh, for visitors to visit and explore the history of Lancaster County, um, uh, which of course Buchanan was a part of and Thaddeus Stevens, uh, the firebrand congressman uh, who was a thorn in Lincoln's side and, <laughs> and Buchanan's side. Here on the 11 acres, uh, visitors come in and they, they, uh, when they come to visit Wheatland uh, and the galleries, uh, they, they can sit down and watch a, about a 22 minute film that explores Buchanan's political career uh, and his presidency. Uh, and then uh, after that, they're given a little orientation uh, by our museum store volunteers and they're sent down to the, to the president's home, which is about, I don't know, maybe a couple of hundred, 250 feet away. Uh, so they make their way down to the mansion and there they're greeted by one of our volunteer tour guides who are dressed in uh, mid 19th century period clothing. Their job is to share the stories of Buchanan's uh, private and public life, primarily his, his private life. Many of the, almost all of our volunteers, I would say are, are you know, comfortable delving into 19th century politics as well. You know, the house is, is huge. I mean, it's a 13,000 square foot man mansion. Uh, we share 50% of that. The first floor, which was the, you know, the, the hallway, two parlors, the dining room, the butler's pantry, the, the library. Uh, and then they're taken upstairs to the bedchambers where they see the, the private space. So in the house, the house is decorated and furnished with uh, a combination of artifacts that have strong provenance to James Buchanan, uh, Harriet Lane, his niece, James Henry, his nephew. Uh, it's also uh, has a variety of other artifacts that help us flesh out the story. You know, uh, for example, none of the oil lamps belong to Buchanan, but we know that he had oil lamps in the house. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's a combination of those types of things. Where can visitors go to learn more about Wheatland and plan their trip? Best and easiest way is to just go to our website, www.lancasterhistory.org. Pat, thanks so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. I want to thank my guests, Beth Garner and Pat Clark, for joining the podcast. Be sure to visit our website and follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more information about upcoming episodes. This has been Hemlocks to Hellbenders. I'll see you out there. Hosting, production, and editing by Christian Alexanderson. Music by John Sauer. Graphics by Uncle Traveling Matt's Random Expedition. 